ओम नमो भगवते वासुदेवाय ओम नमो भगवते वासुदेवाय ओम नमो भगवते वासुदेवाय Bhagavad Gita as it is, chapter 18, text 65. Translation and commentary by the Divine Gratitude, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada, founder Acharya Viskam. Manmana bhava madbhatto, manmana bhava Translation Lord Krishna, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, says Always think of me, become my devotee, worship me, and offer your homage unto me. Thus you will come to me without fail. I promise you this because you are my very dear friend. Purport, the most confidential part of knowledge is that one should become a pure devotee of Krishna and always think of him and act for him. One should not become an official meditator. Life should be so molded that one will always have the chance to think of Krishna. One should always act in such a way that all his daily activities are in connection with Krishna. He should arrange his life in such a way that throughout the 24 hours he cannot but think of Krishna and the Lord's promises that anyone who is in such pure Krishna consciousness will certainly return to the abode of Krishna where he will be engaged in the association of Krishna face to face. This most confidential part of knowledge is spoken to Arjuna because he is the... Dear friend of Krishna, everyone who follows the path of Arjuna can become a dear friend to Krishna and obtain the same perfection as Arjuna. These words stress that one should concentrate his mind upon Krishna, the very form with two hands carrying a flute, the bluish boy with a beautiful face and peacock feathers in his hair. There are descriptions of Krishna found in the Brahma Sanghita and other literatures. One should fix his mind on the original form of Godhead, Krishna. One should not even divert his attention to other forms of the Lord. The Lord has multi-forms as Vishnu, Narayana, Rama, Varaha, etc. But a devotee should concentrate his mind on the form that was present before Arjuna. Concentration of the mind on the form of Krishna constitutes the most confidential part of knowledge And this is disclosed to Arjuna because Arjuna is the most dear friend of Krishna's. This is the most uh, essential part of knowledge spoken by Krishna. Krishna is speaking Bhagavad Gita to give knowledge. It is a book of knowledge. There are different kinds of books. Some are written for entertainment. But... Most important books are books that are written for knowledge. And it's only different books of knowledge. Knowledge of how to work computers. Knowledge of how to fight in various ways. General knowledge, scientific knowledge. But the most important knowledge... What is the most important knowledge? 
to us as living beings. If the, what would be the most important knowledge that we could get? So different people would answer this in different ways. Some people would say, well, the most important knowledge would be how I can become a billionaire. And someone else would say, well, the most important knowledge I would get is how to have a very healthy body. So why would you want to be a millionaire? The idea is a billionaire. The idea is I'm not a billionaire now. I'd be more happy if I had a a billion euros. Now I only have 2.5 euros. So if I had a billion more, I'd be more happy. Or someone may think if I had a big, strong, healthy body, then I'd be more happy because now I have a weak, unhealthy body, so I can't enjoy life properly and I'm not very attractive. So if I had a very strong and healthy body, then I'd be able to enjoy life better. So the basic idea is, if we're thinking what would be the best kind of knowledge, we're thinking that, what, well, what I'm lacking now, I would gain by getting that knowledge. Now I'm suffering because I only have 2.5 euros or I only have a very weak and unhealthy body, but if I got the knowledge of how to get a strong and healthy body or the knowledge how to get a billion dollars or if I got the, the knowledge how to become a, a computer programming expert then I could get a great job. So we want to get knowledge that will, that will fill up our deficiencies and we think I have such a deficiency because of lack of knowledge that if that was filled up then I would my life would be better. But here Krishna is addressing the sum total of all our deficiencies, which we're probably not even aware of. That what, what is the real thing that I'm lacking? Even if you get a billion dollars, then you'll want another billion. Or we'll find that still we have so many problems. But if I have a healthy body, however healthy it is, it has to die sooner or later. So what is the what is that knowledge that can solve all our problems? To understand this, we'll have to find what is the root cause of all our problems. Mostly people operate on a very superficial level. How, how I can get more money. I can get a healthy body. Their approach to religion is very superficial. They go to God asking for the same thing. God give me a, a billion dollars or at least enough to pay my bills. Or God give me good health. So we can say that is pious. At least people are approaching God. But it's not really understanding God or who he is. In fact, most of the religious processes going on in the world, they ignore the most essential point which is suggested here by Krishna, is that we should love God for his own sake. Mostly people approach God like this. Give me this, give me that. And they think that by following some religious process, then eventually when they die, they'll go to God and God will arrange for them to enjoy. 
life in heaven. And in heaven they'll get... Actually, there's not a very clear idea given in different religious scriptures. There was one ex-archbishop of Canterbury, which means the head of all the Anglicans, the biggest Protestant denomination in the world, Bishop of Canterbury, because it's you have to go up and up and up, and when you're almost ready to die, they make you the Archbishop of Canterbury. So he was asked that, well, what what do you want to do when you go to heaven? They presumed he was going to heaven because he's the Archbishop of Canterbury, although we have our doubts. But anyway, he said that, well, for the first hundreds I'll praise God, and then for the rest of time I'll enjoy myself. <laughs> because they think that God, his... God, he should just make an arrangement so I can enjoy myself. That's God's duty. That's God's duty. But Krishna consciousness is a different, completely different approach to religion. The approach is that how we should dedicate ourselves for the enjoyment of God simply for his pleasure without any personal desire. And we think, well, what's that then? What's the use of that? Here we're working for so many different people. We work for the boss in the office or whatever. We work to maintain our fam families. And then if we have to, again we go to heaven and we have to work for God, well what's the point? Go to heaven means we should just enjoy ourselves. I mean here we find that one of the leading religionists in the world has got this idea. So what to speak of ordinary people? But this concept that we should worship God so that God can help us to enjoy better, this very concept is the root cause of all our problems. We think that we should be the center, I should be the center, I should be the enjoyer. But we don't understand that God is the enjoyer. He is the enjoyer of everything. He is a person. In most religious systems, we don't even want to accept that God is a person. Because if we think that he's a person, then, then that, he's, that means he's a greater person than me. And then my, my position of enjoyment is compromised by God. Then we see God as a competitor for our enjoyment. So, this, this idea of relegating God to a non-person... He's some force or power. You can pray to him, although him is not really proper because it's some kind of impersonal it. So you can pray to God, but he's not really a person. It seems rather strange how you can pray to God, but he's not a person. He creates everything. He if, you pray, if you pray to him, you expect him to fulfill your desires. These are all things that people do. People create things. People, you ask them for something. But then we want to relegate God to a non-person. This is due to, as Prabhupada used to say, a poor fund of knowledge. Because we think that, well, I'm a person, so how can God be a person? That means God's the same as me. This is, again, this is trying to apply material logic 
for it is not applicable. I am a person and I am a rascal. So if we think God, and every other person I've seen in this world is also a rascal. So if God is a person, he must also be a rascal. This is poor, poor logic. Or I am a person and I am limited. So if God is a person, he must also be limited. This is again poor logic. That God by nature is unlimited. So if he's unlimited, then he should also be able to be a person. Because if we say he's not a person, if we say he's a person that's putting a limit on him, but also saying he's not a person, that also puts a limit on him. By saying he can't be a person, then he's not unlimited. So God is a person, but not a person as we think. person in the sense that he has form, qualities, activities, likes and dislikes. He eats. You say, well, you think, that's very strange. Why does God have to eat? He doesn't have to eat in the same way that we have to. If we don't eat, then we, then we lose energy. But God is the source of all energy. But he eats not as a function to maintain his body, but to accept the love of his devotees that they provide food for him not that he needs it, but he accepts it because it's offered with love. So here the idea is to love God, and love means you have to love a person. You can't love a non-person. You can't love something, something. You cannot love something. You can love a person. You can say, well, I love my car, but it's not in the same way that I love my wife. It means... When you say, I love my car, it means I'm very attached to my car. But you, we can't have exchanges with a non-person, like a car, in the same way we can have exchanges with our wives and friends and children. Personal exchanges. So if we say that God is not a person, then that means he's in one way less than us, because we are people. So this point, actually most of the religious systems of the world, they try to deny that God is a person. The most essential point. Because religion means ultimately to love God. And love means to, uh, as a person and there is exchange. Now you may think, well how is this possible? Because God is so great and he is so small. How can there be an exchange between me and him, but we're already praying to him, that's already an exchange. If at all we accept there's God and then we're praying to him, then that's an exchange. So he's very great and we're very small, but that's another symptom of his greatness, his kindness. God's greatness is not just his creating and destroying and being very powerful, but his kindness. How great is his kindness? And his kindness is not simply in giving us money and curing our backaches. There's a lot more to the kindness of God than that. And the kindness of God is not simply that he arranges we can go to heaven and then we can enjoy ourselves there. Yes, we will enjoy in the spiritual world with God, but what is the nature of that enjoyment? If we think that the nature of enjoyment in the spiritual world is something like, like enjoyment as we imagine it here, I will go to heaven and then there will be uh, 
all kinds of facilities. I live in a palace and there'll be all kinds of nice food and all kinds of servants for me. Then again, we're trying to make ourselves the center, make ourselves the enjoyer. And then what about the servants? And what are they doing? Then they're, then they're not enjoying because they're subordinate to me. But rather, our enjoyment in the spiritual world means that we enjoy with Krishna, with God. We have a personal relationship with Him. And that is the source of our enjoyment. Not that we have physical comforts. Not that we don't have to go to work and pay bills. That, of course, in the spiritual world, there's no going to work and paying bills. But there is enjoyment, but not trying to make myself the enjoyer, but living with Krishna himself is the supreme person, the supreme enjoyer, supreme blissful person. And he is such a wonderful person that to be with him and simple things, running with him, playing with him, dancing with him, eating with him, all these things, because he is the most wonderful, sweet and kind person, then this exchange of love with him, greatest gift to us. God's greatest gift to us is not curing our backache or curing or giving a solution to our financial problems, but how we can live in a relationship of pure love with him, that he doesn't just give us some minor benediction, but he gives himself to us. The devotee is expected to give himself to God, and in return he gives himself to us, and there's no greater gift than that. But the devotee doesn't want to, oh, now I have got God in my control, therefore I will use it to control others. Not like that. The whole mentality that I will exploit and enjoy this material world, that is it diseased consciousness. And if we bring this consciousness to religion, that I will engage, I will pray to God and I will engage God in my plans to exploit and enjoy the universe, then actually that's that's a very uh, perverse kind of religion. Rather, religion should be that if at all I want to petition God for any benediction in this world, it should be that how I can ask God how he can help me to become his instrument in preaching his glories. So this uh, concept of religion, often people find Krishna consciousness very difficult to understand because as long as we are attached to the idea that God cannot be or must not or should not be a person. And that God's duty is to arrange enjoyment for me, then we can't actually understand. Therefore, you see, we have all this interfaith. And, but uh, and we can go to different religious preachers and discuss this and that. But actually, as long as we have the idea that God is there for our enjoyment, then... There's no, there's no real uh, understanding of religion. It's very superficial. So here Krishna is recommending the process by which we can be freed from all difficulties by giving ourselves to him. All our difficulties are caused because we are thinking how I can enjoy myself separately from Krishna. Instead of thinking how I can serve Krishna. 
So even if we even if we ask God, give me a billion dollars, and even if we get it from Him, that won't solve our problem because the very root of our problem is that we want to enjoy separately from Krishna. So if we, even if we get the billion dollars, and then we're going on with the same mentality, how I can enjoy separately from Krishna? Therefore, we find even billionaires and even people with healthy, strong bodies and all the things that we might desire, that we might think would give us happiness, we find that people, even they have these things, they're not at all happy. We don't find that they're happy. We might think that they're happy because they have, we think they should be happy because they're living in big houses and they have big cars and so many things. But they're not happy. It's just like if you go to a relatively poor country and you tell people that, well, people in the West, actually, they're not very happy. They're, they're all miserable. And then, well, how can they be miserable? You see, they have plenty of money and cars and houses and all these things. And they must be happy because, you see, I'm living in this poverty-stricken situation. And uh, definitely, if I had lots of money, I'd be more happy. It's a very simplistic way of thinking. But uh, we find that generally, just like in India, if we tell the average person that people in America are not happy, they just don't believe it. They, they can't believe how it cannot be true because people have got lots of money. And you see on the TV, all the movies, that you know, they look, they look, look as if they're happy. So why shouldn't they be happy? But uh, the fact is that these things don't, they in and of themselves, they don't bring happiness. So what Krishna is offering, that we always think of Krishna and become his devotee. That is actually in our real self-interest. We think our self-interest is how to get money and all the things that money can do for us or can buy for us. But this doesn't solve our problem. We're still, and even even if we get all kinds of facilities, Janmaishvarya, Shruta, Shri, these are the four kinds of basic opulences. Birth in a high family or a prominent nation, having lots of money, being very intelligent and educated, and having physical beauty and strength. So these are four basic kinds of opulences facilities that people desire but even if we get them they, they don't last, nothing in this world lasts we have to die so if we think that well I'll lead a religious life and worship God and then I'll go to God and then I'll, in, I'll enjoy these things in the kingdom of God but actually if we have such a mentality then we don't we cannot actually understand God if we have the mentality that God, He will provide for me to enjoy, then we can't understand Him. Because our constitutional position as spiritual souls is that we are meant to act for the enjoyment of Krishna, who is the supreme enjoyer. And if we do that, then we enjoy with Him. But if we think I should become a separate enjoyer, then we can't understand. That knowledge of Krishna is blocked by the wrong attitude. 
knowledge of God doesn't come from even from studying scriptures. Not we can even if we study scriptures, if we have the wrong attitude then Krishna will not bless us with the proper understanding. That's why we see many people, they, they know all the verses, not many people, but many people, they know at least some verses from Bhagavad Gita, but they don't understand what is the actual message, which is to become his devotee, even though Krishna states it very clearly here, that we should become his devotees. There are even people who can quote these verses, but they don't enter into the spirit of it, because they have the attitude that I should be the enjoyer. Instead of accepting that Krishna is the enjoyer. Ultimately, to, we accept that God is great, but really to accept that fully means to accept our subordinate position to Him. And we have no position. We have no position to be any enjoyer separately from Krishna. We have real devotion to God means not to uh, not to desire anything for ourselves. And people may say, well, what's the point of worshipping God if you don't desire anything for yourselves? Because they think that the very purpose to worship God is to get something from Him. But Krishna teaches something completely different. Don't think what you will get from me. Don't worry, I'm looking after you. You don't demand this, 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 that, that, that. Anyway, I'm going to look after you. So why come... Give us this day our daily bread. You think I'm not going to feed you? You're so lacking in faith that you have to pray for bread. So better not to ask God for bread. Better, better not to ask Him for anything. Better to pray to Him that simply make me your servant. Do with you, do with me as you wish me to do. What do you want me to do? Instead of going to God and asking that here's what I want you to do for me. Better go to him and ask, what do you want me to do for you? Then again the question may come, what can we do for God? Because he's all powerful. He's all powerful, but he likes, because he's a person, he likes that we will act in a manner that is pleasing to him. He can do, he can do everything by his own potency. But... He becomes pleased when he sees that his devotees are acting out of love for him. Just like a father, he provides everything for the child, but if the child has an expression of appreciation for the father, brings, sees some nice flower in the garden and picks that and brings it to the father. Oh, here's a nice flower. So the father himself is maintaining the garden. But the child has brought, this is a nice flower. I want you to enjoy this. It's something very nice. You please enjoy it. And the father appreciates, oh, how nice my child is. So Krishna says the same thing. If one offers me with leaf, with love and devotion, a leaf, fruit, flower or water, which are all my creations, but if you offer it with love, I will accept it. So, Krishna conscious, it's very simple, it simply means to love Krishna. And why, why worship, why worship him? Simply because he is lovable. Because he is so sweet, so kind, 
so lovable, then we should offer our love to him. That is our actual necessity of our heart, is to love. But in this material world, love means everyone is trying to get something from someone else. Just like we find, for instance, to give an example, we find that young men fall in love with young women, and vice versa. Now, we don't find that a young man falls in love with an old woman. Because, he said, I'll fall in love with this young woman because there's something enjoyable to be had from the young woman. Not from the old woman, there's nothing enjoyable to be had. And we find that young men, or even any men, tend to fall in love with young women with very beautiful, attractive bodily features. And they say, I'm falling, you're such a wonderful person, but actually they're attracted to the body. It's not, they say, I love you for what you are, but they think, actually they're attracted to the body. So love in this material world, or, or you'll find that uh, if a man is very rich, then he'll have so many friends. And then when he loses money, he loses friends. So the friends, it's a well-known thing. So the friends, they didn't like him because he was a, he was a person or what. They were just attached to, his, attached to his money, that's all. So in this material world, love means to... Uh, become attached to someone for what we can get from them. But love of Krishna means that anyway Krishna will give us all that we need. But we're simply attached to him because of his wonderful transcendental qualities. Yes, he's all beautiful, but we, we are attracted to his beauty, not that I will enjoy or I will exploit. Actually, Krishna consciousness is such a high understanding that uh, Krishna, he's a person, so he also has his female consorts. He's the supreme enjoyer person. It's very difficult for people to understand because in this material world, we, we think that, uh, well, attraction between male and female, that's, uh, that's something material. But that's a reflection of the original attraction that Krishna has for Radharani and his queens and the gopis. So he's enjoying and they're enjoying with him. But that enjoyment that is ananda chinmaya rasa, that is totally spiritual enjoyment. There's no trace of personal sense gratification in that. So a devotee is attracted by the beauty of Krishna, but he doesn't think, let me enjoy the beauty of Krishna, I will enjoy but rather he thinks Krishna is so beautiful and Krishna's uh, gopis and queens, they are so beautiful. So let me, let me, they are enjoying ananda chinmaya rasa, spiritual enjoyment. Let me become a servant of them and assist in their enjoyment. So it's a very high concept for us who are in the consciousness. Let me enjoy in this material world. So actually Krishna doesn't discuss here in Bhagavad Gita all these intimate details of his personal life, but he gives the basic understanding 
that we should give up our mentality of thinking how I can enjoy my body, how I can enjoy this material world and understand I am not the body, I am an eternal spirit soul. This body will die, but uh, I will continue to live and I will get body after body after body suffering in this, in this material world as, unless and until I understand that I am a spiritual being and I am meant to serve this supreme eternal spiritual being, the supreme eternal spiritual person who is Krishna. So this is in our best interest. This is the highest knowledge by which we can get free from all problems simply by understanding that I am meant to serve Krishna. This is being this this is this knowledge is being given by Krishna. So this knowledge, this is good for everybody. This knowledge is the best knowledge for everybody because everybody, every living being is part and parcel of Krishna and every living being can uh, attain the highest perfection. Every living being is meant for this to simply become absorbed in thoughts of Krishna, how to serve Krishna. So this Krishna conscious movement is meant for giving this knowledge that we are meant to serve Krishna and not just theoretical knowledge but practical is giving practical guidance in how to serve Krishna. Mm-hmm. Just like Krishna says that Patram Pushpam Param that whatever you, you you can offer these things to me I will accept. So devotees of Krishna they are offering food flowers song dance all these things to Krishna. Everything should be offered to Krishna. Whatever ability we have, we're getting from Krishna. Whatever possessions we may have, we're getting from Krishna. So, in gratitude and with joy, we should offer that to Krishna. And Krishna will be very pleased by that. But if we think that I shall enjoy this without offering to Krishna, then Krishna, that means denying Krishna, just, uh, I will enjoy then we become like thieves, not recognizing that actually this is all the possession of Krishna. So to live a life without Krishna consciousness means to lead a sinful life. And to live life in Krishna consciousness means to live a pure life, everything offered to Krishna, without any desire for personal enjoyment. But by living in that consciousness, that pure Krishna consciousness, we become eligible to enter the spiritual world where Krishna is eternally enjoying by singing and dancing and eating without any indigestion. There's no um, there's no bad quality in the spiritual world. All the things that we think enjoyable here are going on there. But there everything is conducted in a spirit of loving service to Krishna. So there is no uh, bad effect like in this material world there's no bad effect you dance and you dance if you dance of course mostly people only dance here when they're intoxicated so they, then they get some headache the next morning and they're dancing or maybe a professional dancer professional sportsman and then when you get older you get all this uh, rheumatism and arthritis but there's no such thing 
There's no old age in the spiritual world. Everyone is eternally young, living with Krishna, who is the supreme eternal youth, serving him very happily. That happiness is not broken by any unhappiness, as it is in this material world we get a little happiness, but again that turns to unhappiness. But in the spiritual world, there's unmitigated, everlasting happiness, because that is the true happiness of the soul, which is the happiness of living with Krishna, being with Krishna, and serving him in loving exchange. So Krishna is recommending for our benefit, always think of me, become my devotee, worship me and bow down to me. In this way, you will surely come to me. Krishna says, I promise you this, because you are my very dear friend. Hare Krishna. Is there any question about this? No. Um, you mentioned that people have relationships in the material world on the basis of wealth or physical attraction. So you know, we also are part of the we're also part of the material world, but we're trying to preach Krishna consciousness. So what should be the motivation in our in developing certain relationships with certain people? What should be our motivation for developing relationships? A devotee develops relationships with others in this world on the basis of Krishna consciousness. There's no use to develop any material relationship. There's no use to walking out on the street and slapping someone on the back and saying, hey, let's go for a beer. That's a material relationship. You can slap them on the back and say, hey, take this book. So the slapping on the back, that may be the same. But the motivation, well, that's material, but it can be spiritualized. Everything in this material world can be spiritualized. Almost, and not everything. Butcher's shop, they have to stop killing the animals. Then even that you can convert to Krishna conscious stalker. Although generally we don't recommend to take up such places. But mostly devotees always seem to get all kinds of funny buildings. Often ghostly haunted buildings because no one else wants to take it. So, But anything we can speak. Uh, Just like sometimes devotee, they become devotees and think, now I have to stop relating with my parents because it's a material relationship. But that can be spiritualized also. Of course, it's usually a little slow and difficult. But uh, even if the parents say relate to us as my darling child, if they have some affection for us and we are practicing Krishna consciousness, they'll get some benefit from that. So Prabhupada gave an example, Bengali proverb, that when you go fishing, of course devotees don't go fishing, but it's a, it's a saying, then you have to catch the fish without getting wet, without getting pulled in yourself. So we, can, we have to relate to this material world, we're living in it, but everything should be Krishna-centered. Try to make everything Krishna-centered. Yeah, then another question. Yeah. You have another question continuing that? Yeah. Okay. Um, because in preaching Krishna consciousness, it 
can also be very advantageous if we develop relationships with wealthy or influential people like the majority of the George Harris. Yeah. So what's the difference between that and a materialistic desire to have a relationship with someone on the basis of wealth? We may desire to befriend wealthy and influential people because they can be helpful in developing Christian consciousness. What is the difference between that and simply desiring to have a wealthy friend? It's a question of motive and attitude. If our motive is that I will befriend this person and let him be engaged in Krishna's service, then that is, uh, that is a spiritual activity. Because it's the basis is how to serve Krishna. But if we think, let me befriend him and then I'll get some of his money, then that's for my own sense enjoyment, then that's material. It's all a question of attitude and motivation. If the, if the motivation is to please Krishna, and if it's on the basis of Guru, Sadhu and Shastra, if it's under the, what is act, we have to know what is pleasing to Krishna. We may think that I will be a butcher for Krishna, but that's not pleasing to Krishna. Krishna says, everything that you eat, you offer to me, and if we think I, I like to eat uh, meat, I'll offer that to Krishna. But that won't be pleasing to Krishna, because Krishna is a person, and as a person, he can eat what he likes because he's God, but he chooses that I won't eat meat. So we can offer meat to him and think that I like meat, but... Krishna doesn't like that. Often people ask, can we, offer, can we offer this, can we offer that, can we offer mushrooms, can we offer this and that. But so you could say, well, maybe you could, but what does Krishna think? That should be, we should really think what Krishna likes. Instead of thinking, what I like to eat, can I offer it, can I get away with offering it to Krishna, and then I can eat it and enjoy it myself. But really we should think what Krishna likes. That's the best attitude, especially in uh, worshiping deities. We should think what Krishna wants to eat. Yeah, then. Yeah, I was wondering because um, the bread that Shri Prabhupada says is um, it's not real love in the material world, it's not love. But is there any, any relationships in the material world? I mean, it's actually like, say, a mother as a child. Are there any relationships in this material world which are not material, basically, that's what you're asking, which are not based on lust? Well, uh, when we say there's no love in this material world, it's all lust. It doesn't mean that, uh, that it's uh, necessarily sexual lust. I mean, the word... Actually, the word for lust, the word is calm, is there in Sanskrit, calm. So that, that can be translated as, as lust or desire. So, lust in the sense that it's desire for personal enjoyment. Prabhupada said that the love of a mother towards her child is the, is the closest to spiritual love. Because it's the most selfless. But still, there's, uh, it's not free from the desire for personal enjoyment. One, one has a ch- 
One has a child because you may think, well, they'll look after me in my old age. Or uh, I'll enjoy having, I want to have, I want to have a baby. I, I, you know, I want to have a, I want to have a baby. I want to have, hold a baby in my arms and how sweet. And, and we also enjoy that feeling of reciprocation, how the baby is depending on me. So it may be more, it may be not be as gross as gross sexual desire, but it's, unless the desire is there to satisfy Krishna, then it has to be material. There's either personal desire or there's spiritual desire. So again, that relationship, a mother can desire. I was just reading today, actually, Prabhupada said, if you, if you can deliver your children from birth and death, and make them Krishna conscious, you can have hundreds of children. Prabhupada used to quote his own Guru Maharaj, who said that if I could, uh, although, I'm, although I'm a brahmachari all my life, if, if I could make, if I could have Krishna, I wouldn't have any objection if I could make Krishna conscious children. I could have hundreds. Prabhupada commented, still he didn't. Then another question? Yeah. In the Prophet, Srila Prabhupada says that the pure devotee can see Krishna face to face. Does that mean that he can see Krishna in this room? In the Prophet, Krishna says that devotee sees Krishna face to face. Does it mean that he can see Krishna in this room? Well, Prabhupada, <laughs> he was asked that question. Similar question. So one newspaper reporter asked Prabhupada that, uh, well, you know, when you, people ask you so many questions and then, and there's so many things arise in your movement, then how do you know the answer? Prabhupada says, I ask Krishna. And then, uh, one of Prabhupada's disciples, Rameshwar Prabhu, and he said, and the, the, the reporter said, well, what does that mean you ask Krishna? And then Ramesha explained that, you see, well, Krishna writes the scriptures and then you refer to the scriptures. And Prabhupada said, no, what are you talking nonsense? <laughs> I asked Krishna. <laughs> I asked Krishna. So, yeah, devotee, pure devotee has face-to-face relationship with Krishna. Face to face. Otherwise, what's the point? I mean, what are we doing what's all for? We, are, we, are we doing all that? We're chanting Hare Krishna so that eventually we'll go to the spiritual world and we'll just sit on a cloud and string a harp. Yeah. <laughs> that's all there is to it. It's too boring. I mean, then people, uh, that's why people, you know, they don't care. They tell them they go to hell, I don't care. It's more fun. If you know, if you go to heaven, have, have to go to heaven and sit on a cloud and build a have to do that for eternity it's too boring better to go to hell at least all my friends will be there we can have a party so, so uh, just people have these ideas you go to heaven and you sit on a cloud and you play a harp because they have, because they have no idea actually what is there in the spiritual world so de- definitely Krishna conscious means seeing Krishna face to face. Prabhupada said, 
he wrote in one letter that there is no time in my life when I was ever forgetful of Krishna. Another time Prabhupada was asked, he, he said that, uh, do you see God? And Prabhupada said, well, what is the use if I tell you the reply? Will you believe me? And will you accept? Even if I say yes, will you accept? He said, yeah, I'll accept what you say. So Prabhupada said, yes, I'm seeing Krishna face to face 24 hours a day. So that's it. That's what Krishna consciousness is for, for developing that. So we can see Krishna. And Prabhupada many times said, if you simply follow this process, you chant 16 rounds, you follow four regulated principles, you engage in devotional service, then you will see Krishna face to face in his very life. It's just one, one small condition. <laughs> you just have to give up all material desire. Then, any other question? Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you touched this point, I think, in, in your lecture, but I'm wondering, since long time, it's this verse in Bhagavad Gita, um, one who understands the transcendental nature of my um, birth and activities, he I, I cannot figure out what this means, understand. It doesn't mean, I, I can imagine, it doesn't mean that I understand it intellectually. What does it mean when Krishna says, one who understands the transcendental nature of my appearance and activities never has to take birth again, but he comes to me? What is the meaning? No, it, is it simply an intellectual understanding? No. Because we, it is not possible to understand Krishna simply by an, an academic method. The materialistic demeanor cannot possibly stretch to the transcendental autocrat. You can translate that. It's not so easy. But this is answers what he's writing. It's not so easy to understand. But Krishna says, Bhaktyamavijanati. I can be understood through bhakti. So understanding means that uh, we hear and we, un we hear from scriptures, we hear from Guru, Sadhu and Shastra how as Krishna himself explains in that section of Bhagavad Gita, it's a very interesting section. Krishna says, I am unborn and my transcendental form never deteriorates. Nevertheless, I, uh, I appear within this material world in my original transcendental form by my own energy. So, uh, we, we hear and we understand but the beginning of understanding, as Prabhupada once said, is standing under. Submissive attitude. So, first of all, we have to understand that we can't understand God simply by an academic approach. But that we can understand Him by His, His mercy, which He gives to us if we humbly accept that I am... In, totally inferior to him and totally dependent upon him. Then we can understand. But it's important that Krishna says, one who understands my appearance and activities, because this again stresses the point that he's a person. 
we, to understand means to accept that he is a person who has activities. So if it's just a theoretical understanding, God is great, then we actually we can't understand Krishna. Simply to say he's great, but then what does he do? What, what does he look like? What are his names? How can we live with him? What is he what is he like to eat? This this is an when Janma Karma understanding his activities. That means to understand in detail how he is a person. That's the that's the broader meaning. It's not simply that we we sit for a Bhakti Shastra exam. And then you get uh, then you pass your Bhakti Shastra exam, then you can get Brahman initiative. I think that's the rule. So you can have a Bhakti Shastra exam. That doesn't mean you have bhakti. So we should understand, definitely these things are to be studied and understood, but in a mood of devotion, that's the all-important thing. That's the all-important factor. Yeah. How does he ask him? How he gets the answer? Well, he speaks to Krishna and Krishna speaks back to him. You can't understand because you don't accept that Krishna is a person. You think that Krishna is so far away, but he's right here also. It's difficult for us to understand because we're materially conditioned. But actually Krishna is with us. And if we become pure, then we can see him and talk to him. That's the wonderful thing about Krishna consciousness. We're not just worshipping a God who's so great, he's so far away and so vast. But if we uh, develop our love for God, then uh, Krishna will sit on our lap and we'll feed him. <laughs> Inconceivable. Another question. You avoided this verse that you can offer a flower to Krishna. So my question is, do we have to possess Do we, we have to possess the flower? Could we go into the supermarket and steal it? And offer everything so that the Sometimes devotees do that. <laughs> They walk into the supermarket and offer everything to Krishna. Well, I don't know what they do with the meat. <laughs> well, there, there's a method to offer things to Krishna also. It's called the Archan Vidhi. There are rules and regulations for offering. So, first of all, generally one should procure items for offering. Just like you said, a householder, he should get the offerings by working and either earning or just pr producing the foods himself. Or a brahmana, people may bring him some fruits and flowers and then he offers them to Krishna. Or a temple, in an established temple, people will bring them. Generally, they should be in one's possession. And then they're offered. 
In one's position means one understands actually nothing is mine, but then one formally offers them to Krishna. So, you can offer the whole world to Krishna. But then, it's not really ours to offer, is it? And that would also deprive others of the possibility of... If we think that now I've offered everything to Krishna, then that's depriving others of the possibility of offering also. So that is not according to the proper rules and regulations. There are rules and regulations how to offer also. So it's a nice thought that the devotees will offer everything in the supermarket and then everyone will get prasanna. <laughs> but it's not the proper system of doing And actually you should, you see, you should inspect first and you don't offer the offer. You shouldn't offer rotten fruit. So like this. Unwashed also. Yeah. Where's this story from? <laughs> well, it may not be coming from Vyas. It may be, but I'm not aware of it. Generally, you see, as Prabhupada notes in one of the purports here in Bhagavad Gita, that uh, in India, even a poor man can afford some flowers. You can go and pick some from here and there. And even, you see, if someone has a big flower tree, then uh, if someone, the neighbor is there, they'll generally allow you to pick three or four flowers for puja purpose. They won't deny it if you have so many flowers on the tree. So, it doesn't sound like a very authentic story. Although maybe the mood is nice, that Durga later got it and she became ecstatic. I don't believe everything I hear everyone says, even if they're, uh, you know, supposed to be an authorized devotee, because we have to understand according to Guru, Sadhu, and Shastra. And even someone's a guru, they have to speak according to Guru, Sadhu, and Shastra also. So I have a little antenna here, which catches... It only takes things on a certain frequency. That frequency is Guru, Sadhu, and Shastra.
And other things, uh, we may say that it's, it's, uh, doubtful unless authenticated. Just like I was reading this morning, that, anyway, I won't discuss it this morning. Someone is trying to, uh, Someone is trying to say that uh, homosexuality is accepted and homosexuals are considered auspicious in Vedic culture. So this is coming from one of the gurus in our movement. But I don't accept it because I read in Prabhupada's books that it's considered demonia. So... Maybe a guru, but he's not speaking according to Guru Sadhu and Chaitanya. So I, I wrote him a letter and say, can you provide some Guru Sadhu and Shastra about this? Let's see how he replies. <laughs> we should be very careful. There's so, so many people say so many things, but we have to see what is the Shastra basis. Shastra Vidamutsuja Vartate Kama Karataha Nasa Siddhavatnati Nasukamna Parangati. Those who don't follow Shastra and speculate and invent their own ways of behaving, they can they cannot achieve perfection. Nor happiness, nor the supreme destination. So we should be a little careful about hearing. I tell you, I've heard, someone told me they heard a story from an Iskong guru, and I knew where the story was coming from. It's coming from a so-called spiritual comic book produced in India. A lot of, you know, the, the people, they read these, they read these comic books and they oh, I've got some new story to tell. <laughs> <laughs> should be very careful. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. All right. Prabhupada, he also said that my devotees will, my disciples will write purports on my purports. And he also said that the foremost duty of a person in the renounced order of life is to make some literary contribution for the spiritual uplift of society. So in this regard, I'm also writing books which are supplementary to Prabhupada's books. So they're mostly written for devotees. So I'm also trying to distribute them because what's the point of writing them if you don't distribute them? So you have them there? So I'd like to show them and Try and distribute them here a little bit. I wrote a few books. Because yeah, you can take them. I think mostly devotees here, they're all surrendered devotees, which means they don't have any spare euros. They only have 2.3 euros. Is it? Great. Thank you.
Yeah, so this is uh, the first book I wrote in English. I actually wrote some books before that in other languages. Anyway, it's the first one in English. And um, this has been appreciated by Grihastha devotees and by many Mataji devotees also. Because the basic message is to be serious in Krishna consciousness. As a beginner's guide to Krishna consciousness, all you want to know about Krishna consciousness but we're afraid to ask. Uh, basic guidelines. This is called Jai Srila Prabhupada. As you can see, as the title, it's basically appreciation of Srila Prabhupada. We only have four books, you know? There's no other varieties. There's Youth You have it there? No. No, And then this Mahamaharis. And Rasikananda's Rasikananda's Somehow we didn't bring all the varieties here. This is an edition of Ramayana, which I wrote, or I prepared, I didn't write it, it's from Nikis. But because I saw devotees there mostly reading all these Mayavadi editions. But then at the same time, two other editions came out. So, anyway, I also. It's with some little commentary also, some philosophical things. So these are a few of my books. There are others which are not here. There's also a few CDs. And so, Hare Krishna. Only once you can purchase them. And devotees tell me that they find it very helpful for their advancement in Krishna consciousness. So, I suppose it must be true. They're not just saying that. Yes, please. Yeah. Someone accepts the message in the book and someone doesn't. That may depend on various factors. A major factor is often how much we've developed in previous lives. We see that, just like we're preaching this Krishna consciousness all over the world, and basically we do the same thing everywhere. We distribute books about Krishna. We chant the names of Krishna. Some people take it up and some don't. Some people take a little interest in it. Some people take no interest. And some people from the very beginning, they're very serious. (coughs) So we can understand that people who take it up very seriously from the very beginning, that in a previous life they were also very serious, but they didn't achieve full perfection. So now they're coming to take it up again. This is described in Bhagavad Gita. One takes it up again from his previous life. You know that verse? Shutimal Srimatam Gehe Yoga Varshta Vijayate. And the people who show no interest, well, at least if they take a book, then they're starting. Or sometimes 
it may be that uh, even one has made some progress in a previous life, but at, the, at this point in life, he's not ready to take that up. Often it happens, people take a book, they put it on their shelf, it stays there for ten years, and then at some point they're feeling some mental agitation, so they pick up the book, and then they take it up. So there are various factors. Krishna is in our heart, and he sees our various desires, and he guides us accordingly. So if we have... Krishna, is, he wants us to come to him, but if we, uh, if we ourselves don't express much interest in that, then Krishna, he will help us to fulfill our material desires rather than our spiritual desires. Because Krishna helps us to fulfill our desires. So we are presenting this philosophy of Krishna consciousness and this lifestyle of Krishna consciousness to show people that actually this is the best way of life. Not only for now, but for eternity. For our eternal self-interest, our best interest, Krishna consciousness is the best way of life. So people who are very fortunate and who have made uh, sufficient advancement to accept that, they can take it up very quickly. Now another major factor is what is called sadhu sangha or association with devotees. That even if in previous lives we haven't been very advanced, then somehow if we associate with devotees or people who are spiritually advanced, advanced in Krishna consciousness, then by associating with them, we can very quickly pick this up. We can very quickly, our desires can become purified. And even if in previous lives we haven't made a lot of advancement, by associating with devotees, then by their influence, we make advancement in this life and we can take up Krishna consciousness very seriously. So now you're taking up interest in Krishna consciousness. You kindly consider that that must be due to some good fortune, either in a previous life or in this life. So why not take full advantage of it? Why wait for another life? Go ahead in this life. It's easy to take up Krishna consciousness. It's very easy actually. There's nothing difficult. Krishna consciousness means to chant Hare Krishna, to accept food offered to Krishna, to understand Krishna from Bhagavad Gita. It's very easy and very joyful. All we have to do is to do it. We have to make the decision to do it. And as we do it, the more we do it, the more we'll find that our life becomes filled with genuine spiritual bliss because that is Krishna consciousness. It's the real nature of the soul. Everything else we're doing, whatever it may be, cannot satisfy us because it's it's foreign to our real nature. Our real nature is that we are parts and parcels of Krishna and his servants. So when we take up Krishna consciousness, we automatically feel happy. People are trying to be happy in so many ways, but happiness eludes them, whatever they do. Whatever they try to do, they're not happy because they're trying in the wrong way. They've missed the real clue of happiness, which is simply that we have to dovetail our desires with Krishna's desires, do everything for Krishna's pleasure. 
So everything's there in Krishna consciousness. Whatever we can conceive of to make us happy. Friendship is there. Love is there. Singing, dancing, eating nice foods. Everything is there. But the attitude that I should enjoy myself, that is not there. Everything is done for the pleasure of Krishna. And by that attitude, our singing, our dancing, our friendship, everything becomes Krishna-centered. And because Krishna is by his nature full of bliss, then we reflect the bliss of Krishna. We become fully blissful. So you can see, just like the devotees, they're living here in what might be considered materially not very pleasurable circumstances. They don't have to live here. They don't have to, 25 people share one one shower or one and a half showers. uh, They don't have to do that, any one of them. I mean, they came from a different situation and they could go back to that situation. But they prefer to live in this materially austere situation, rising early in the morning, before sunrise, and then working all day for Krishna without getting any pay. So why are they doing this? Well, I think you can find the answer. You just look in their face and you can see. Devotees look very happy, isn't it? What do you think? So, when we see happy people, what either they're getting paid for looking happy, just like in the, in the advertisement, people are smiling because they're told, smile for the camera. Or are they happy because they're getting intoxicated? But actually they're not happy. But devotees, they're not paid to be in Krishna consciousness. And they don't take intoxication. So this happiness is the happiness of the soul. This actually struck me first very strongly when I first met devotees. I was very strongly struck by this, that these people, they're so happy. And they're living such an austere life. So, obviously, they're not getting happiness from any material means, so it must be spiritual. So that's a fact. This is genuine spiritual happiness. So why not take it up? Thank you very much. So, anything else? Prasadam? You already took Prasadam? Yeah, there's another question. She has a question that is important to the female. The female is keeping the name of the woman. But it's keeping so You always see that there's one God, but there are so many different religions. I know what just the right way to go.
There are different religious processes for different people on different levels. Just like, for instance, there are different levels of teaching mathematics. Children at school are taught one plus one equals two. That is the beginning of mathematics. And then gradually they go up to more difficult levels, multiplication. What is 79 times 356? They learn how to do this. Now, nowadays they don't learn, they just use a calculator. <laughs> so then you gradually go up to algebra, trigonometry, calculus, all these things. So it's all mathematics, but if we try to teach calculus to a four-year-old, they can't understand. They have to go through different stages. So in the same way, there are different paths of God-realization. They're all meant for the same purpose. But different people are on different levels, so they... It's, there's no use to try. If you try to teach a four-year-old calculus, even though it's a high level, they won't learn anything. It's not useful for them to try to, to learn that, because they have to learn the basic things first. So, there are different levels. People have to make progress gradually. So that's why, that's one reason there are different manifestations of religion. Although the purpose of them all is the same. Another thing is that um, often what is taught by God or by his prophets or gurus, that's often misinterpreted and changed by materialistic people. So that in the name of religion we get something which is actually a mixture of religion and irreligion. That's very common. Just like uh, in the Bible it's said in that God gave man dominion over the animals. So Jews and Christians have interpreted this to mean that we should, man should kill the animals. But that's not what is stated. It's just like if I, to give a very gross example, if uh, if I entrust my children that you please, look, I'm going away for some days, you please look after my children. That doesn't mean that you should eat the children. <laughs> it means you should look after them. So if man is given dominion over the animals, it means he should look after them, not kill them. And actually you'll find in every major religion of the world that uh, the most advanced adherents don't eat meat. So, it's just by not eating meat, you won't get love of God. It's not, that in itself doesn't give love of God. Because you'll find even monkeys, they're vegetarians. 
So simply to be a vegetarian in itself doesn't bring love of God. But on the other hand, uh, if, if we're engaged in uh, eating flesh, there are various considerations. One thing is that it's the slaughter of animals causes tremendous suffering. So God isn't pleased with it. So another reason is that flesh, there are so many different reasons. Flesh food, because what we eat affects our consciousness. So that tends to drag our consciousness down. So there are various reasons for not eating meat. But different religions allow that. Because uh, some people, they're not even advanced enough to understand this very basic principle. In fact, you'll find in all religions where meat-eating is allowed, there's some restriction given. Just like in, uh, in Judaism, the idea is that you shouldn't take food with any blood in it. Or you shouldn't take any, actually it said you shouldn't take any blood, which actually means that you shouldn't take meat. But what they do, they bleed the animal to death, and then they say there's no blood in it anymore. But actually when it says you shouldn't take blood, it means you shouldn't take any meat. But they've reinterpreted it in a way that they kill the animal by the most cruel means, and then they eat the meat. So this is an example of how people malinterpret the message of God. So we try to follow exactly what is given without changing it. And yet we're confident that we know the way because uh, you'll find that all the people coming to this Krishna Vantra's movement, they're, they're mostly, even from the material point of view, quite intelligent people. And they're coming to this not simply out of sentiment, but they've studied and seen what are the different... There are so many so many different religious paths being offered, but they've seen and considered and understood that there's, there's no greater understanding of God than that which is given in Bhagavad Gita and Srimad Bhagavatam. Understanding God as the Supreme Person. And the very concept of dedicating our lives selflessly to Him, instead of asking Him what He will give up, give us what we shall give to Him. This highest concept of Godhood, that instead of uh, seeing God as the Father, we can even see God as our Son. Now that's, you may think, how is that possible? Because if we see God as our Father, that means just like you have children, so... How do you deal with your children? You're always looking after them and giving things. You look after them, isn't it? So the devotee, instead of thinking how to make God my father or mother, the devotee thinks, I will take the position where God will be my son because that way I'll be serving him more. It's said that no one, no child can repay the debt to the mother. Because what the mother does for the children, that the mother is serving so much. So the devotee is very clever, thinks, how can I serve God best? Instead of becoming the son of God, and then just becoming, here, Father, give this, give this, give this. He thinks, 
I will take the position where he will become my son, then I can serve him more. Now we say, well, how can I become the, the father or the mother of God? Because he's greater than me. But if we have a desire to serve him so strongly, he will accept the position of our child. So this is advanced theology. <laughs> How we can serve God in a relationship of total love. The love is so strong that God gives up his position of superiority to accept our loving service. Yeah. I have another question. All right. Because you mentioned the prophets and uh, the gurus. You mentioned what, sorry? You mentioned the prophets. Prophets, yeah. Traditions. yeah. So I'm always wondering, in our tradition we have the, the prophecy of the golden age that started 500 years ago, we last 10,000 years. In these huge terms, other religions, they do not work. But they have very exact prophecies, if they would have or not, you know, about uh, the years to come and uh, the next few hundred or thousand What will years. happen in future? Well, they have prophecies, but mostly they don't come true. I mean, I remember as a kid, there, there, there were these people saying the world's going to end in five days. and all. So it was always two years away. And as I grew up, they were consistent. I mean, it was always about two years away. <laughs> but, uh, you know, then the day came and, you know, The sun rose in the morning and people went about their business and it set at night. And there is that book of Revelations in the Bible. Actually, if you study how